I woke up this morning from an awful nightmare. <laughs> you know what? Th- th- those ones that where you wake up, it feels so real that it might affect like the rest of your day. Yeah. So I woke up with that at like 545. Um, and I heard like Reba in her crate. And I'm like, oh shit, I, you know, I can't wake her up. Um, and I knew I was going to be up. And once I'm up, she's up. <sighs> so... I packed a little bag and I went to Kizar Stadium and I just ran around the track <laughs> at like 6.15 in the morning. Um, I hate running. It's probably my absolute least favorite exercise you know, routine or whatever. I love exercising. It's one of my favorite things to do. I hate running. And before you know the whole pandemic whatever whatever you know i was boxing five six days a week and that was my cardio and i was in the best shape of my life and when the pandemic hit you know i knew i wasn't gonna have an opportunity to uh hit up a boxing gym anytime soon so i I had to start just running so i'm running around the track and i'm thinking you know what can i do this morning to just every you know i wake up feeling insecure every day you know Every single day. I'm like, what can I do today to make sure I'm not a fucking loser? So I'm running around the track and I'm just, you know, I'm like, I'm going to go home and I'm just going to write for two hours before work. Well, that didn't happen. Um, (laughs) I went back, sat down on my laptop, opened up whatever chapter, I don't who knows at this point. And I read three words and I just, I closed, I closed my laptop. <laughs> I just, I'm like, you know what? This is just not going to happen right now. No matter what I do right now, it's probably going to be bad. It just, it, w- it wasn't there. And I, and I know why I, I woke up, you know, just trying to force something that wasn't going to happen. I didn't even read this morning. You know, I usually almost always read before I write. Um, and all these things kind of fucking threw me off. And it, 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 before this podcast, I would have just, I would have plowed through it. I would have just, uh, all right, you know what? Let's just do the work, you know, at, at least 30 minutes. Man, you know, having these conversations now, you know, sometimes it's just like close that thing. And I, I have plans to get to it later today, you know? What the fuck else am I going to do? I got no girlfriend. I got no dates. <laughs> I'm just, I, I got Reba and that's it. So, yeah. Sometimes it's just, it, it, it just, it doesn't work. And when it doesn't, put it down. And maybe go for a run. I don't know. Anyways, hope you enjoy this next episode. Give us a follow. Instagram, writing friction. Twitter, friction writing. And please, 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 please tell people about the podcast. Um, Hope you dig it, and I'll see you all next time. Thanks.
What's going on, everyone? And welcome to another episode of Writing Friction. And as always, today's guest is pretty cool. Everyone say hello to Phil Clay. How are you, Phil? I'm doing well. Doing very well. Uh, I'm Phil Clay, to... actually. What's this? It's pronounced Clay. Yeah. Clay, there it is. And that, that's the first correction of the, of the podcast, which is great. <laughs> Again, because I feel like most people are going to say Clay anyways. So that's good for yeah. most people to know. Um, where are you podcasting in from? You're on the East Coast, right? I'm, I'm, I'm from Queens, yeah. in queens yeah yeah uh i was born well actually we were talking just before but i was born in rego park queens um oh the very close by yeah yeah yeah, no most definitely my mom's from some very good food in uh in rego park oh most Um, definitely yeah yeah so Um, not a lot open on fridays (laughs) definitely not um and i'm sure we'll get to that um so you didn't start out in queens new york though where are you from originally where were you born uh, I was born in White Plains, New York. So okay, I've come so. far in life. I've, I've, I've gotten over the, uh, the Whitestone Bridge. And this is the first question I usually ask in the podcast. Did you write your first words in White Plains, New York? Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Uh, I must have. Were you writing as a kid? I mean, were you reading as a kid? I mean, you know, there's, you are always writing. reading a lot. Yeah. That, right. Reading a lot as a kid. Right. Uh, I used to, you know, um, like hide underneath the covers with like a flashlight after my parents had told me to to go to sleep so I could keep reading books. Any idea what you remember reading back then? Uh, I was big into like fantasy type stuff. So I loved, you know, Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. I loved the um, the Black Cauldron, that series, um, uh, Watership Down, uh, uh-huh. Redwall series, you know, those sorts of things. Were, yeah, were I think we're me. a little similar in age. I'm 33. Um, but, you know, my mm-hmm. introduction to reading when I was a kid, I mean, you know, the first things I remember was like the Goosebumps series of the Scholastic. Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, things <laughs> yeah, like yeah, that, right? Sure. And it's like, as a kid, you're like, what the fuck is this? Um, right. And as you get older, it's funny if you if you read about R.L. Stein now, I mean, the guy's a pretty fascinating guy. Um, but uh, as a kid, I mean, you don't think about this dude's pumping out, pumping these books out. I mean, one yeah. after another, after <laughs> yeah. another. Um, it's pretty crazy. Uh, that's cool. So you're growing up in the East Coast. I mean, what are you doing as a kid? I mean, are you kind of like a punk kid? Are you a good kid? I mean, what you know? What's your day like? I, I'd like to think I was a good kid. You know, uh, I don't know. Uh, just a normal kid. <laughs> I, I, I'm one of uh, five boys, so the oh, household wow, okay. was, uh, yeah, you know, uh, climbing trees and uh, playing roller hockey and that kind of thing. Where do you fall on the spectrum of the five boys? I'm number three. Literally yeah. the middle child. Right in the middle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I'm the, I have an older brother and a younger sister, so I'm a middle kid too. Um, so growing up, so you're in these coasts, yeah. you're going to, I had a, I had a, so right next to, so where I grew up, my great aunts, um, the aunties, these like three aunts are very, very important to me. And unfortunately one is, one is only one is still alive, but uh, aunt Mimi and Pixie and aunt Boo, uh, I was Aunt Boo's favorite, and when there was three of us, she always used to say, "Like it's really tough being, you know, the youngest." And then when my two younger uh, kids were born, uh, she was like, "It's really tough being the middle child." You know, <laughs> my, my older brother was like, "Wait, that's, you can't change the rules that way." I used to be the middle child. That's crazy. So we're we're all were you, I mean, were your brothers close? I mean, were you, I mean, five. That's a lot of kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Great. Uh-huh. Um, were so the, any of them kind of in artistic fuels at that time? Or you kind of, I mean, were you in an artistic? No, no, no. So it's, it's funny. So the, um, for my two oldest brothers, my oldest brother is a, um, a musician, right? And Megan Jean and the KFB, uh, you want to check out a song of theirs, check out, just type in 
KFB and these bones and nice. Megan Jean and the KFB and it'll pop up. It's pretty awesome. Um, you get a sense of what they do. Uh, and then my second oldest brother is a former Marine who did two deployments to Iraq and now works at the Pentagon. Okay. So I'm sort of, you know, if you think about what I do artistically, it's sort of like in the middle of those yeah. two guys. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're going we're gonna to get there for sure because, yeah, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, so you go to high school. I mean, are you writing in high school at all? Are you doing, are you putting any kind of words to paper at that point? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think the first story that I ever wrote that I sort of, that it felt like I was risking something, showing it to somebody, right? Yeah. Uh, I wrote in high school uh, and what, short uh, story or was like, what, what, what was it? The short story. We had to write a satire for, uh, an English class for okay. Christian Talbot was my teacher. Great guy. And I wrote this satire that was, uh, it was, you know, <laughs> uh, it was offensive and, uh, it was me trying to be funny. It was me trying to make some real points and I was very nervous about it. Uh, so I showed it to him. I showed it to the teacher like two weeks early. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, you know, there's a lot of profanity and, and stuff in this. So, yeah. you know, I don't know if it's appropriate. So I just wanted you to read it. So you could tell me if I need to write something different, but really what I wanted to do was to show it to him <laughs> and get his, his, his opinion. And then he started reading it. Um, he started laughing while he was reading it. Uh, and that was like the, the best feeling in the world. Having spoken to you, I've known you now for eight minutes. Um, it seems like yeah. you have a sense of humor. Um, I like to think mm -hmm. I have a sense of humor too. And your writing <laughs> has a sense of humor to it as well. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, I've talked to a whole, you know, whole, luckily, a whole bunch of authors now. And, you know, some people are very serious and it comes off in their writing. Um, you know, it's kind of their personality. You're saying that you wrote this first story to, and, you know, he started laughing. That immediate gratification, right. was that something that immediately stuck with you? You're like, well, now I can maybe do something with my written word and have an emotion come from people? It, it wasn't just the laughter, right? It was, um, you know, like, the, I mean, the great thing about laughter, right? It's, you know, it's like, it's just involuntary reaction. Uh, and it, it's an immediate sign that people like what you're doing. But like, it was, it was the sense that I had put something that felt like a real risk on the page, you know, and the last thing that you want is for somebody to look at that and be like, eh, <laughs> you know, um, and he liked it. I, I think that humor is actually really, really important. Um, I don't think, you know, if you don't have a sense of humor, I don't think you're really serious um, because it's a ridiculous world. There's a bit from Emerson. I'll just give it to you real quickly. Uh, uh, where he says, um, you know, Reason does not joke, and men of reason do not. Uh, a prophet in whom the moral sentiment predominates, or a philosopher in whom the love of truth predominates, these do not joke, but they bring the standard, the ideal whole. Uh, and then later he says, there's no joke so true and deep in actual life as when some pure idealist goes up and down the institutions of society, attended by a man who knows the world, and who, sympathizing with the philosopher's scrutiny, sympathizes also with the confusion and indignation of the detected skulking institutions, his perce perception of disparity, his eye wandering perpetually from the rule to the crooked, lying, thieving fact, makes the eyes run over with laughter. This is the radical joke of life and then of literature. And I love that, right? And I think it's that, you know, um, <laughs> from the rule to the 
the crooked, lying, thieving fact is such an important thing. It's such an important thing for the writer to be attuned to. You know, I think literature, even if it's not being explicitly funny, right, has to have a certain type of sensibility uh, to it. And you can tell when somebody has something of a comic sensibility mm-hmm. um, that <laughs> that is also, I think, a big thing in American letters in particular. Uh, you know, Twain and Ellison at least thought it, thought there was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, and with humor, it could be a, a kind of a slippery slope, right? I mean, if you know, if the words of what you're reading is too humorous, like you're saying, there needs to be seriousness behind it, right? Because right. things are so crazy, so fucked up all the time. That's why I love stand-up comedy. Um, mm-hmm. If you talk to any stand-up comedian outside of them being funny, they're usually very dark, very miserable people. <laughs> Yet they have, you're la- right? It's like that's what yeah. it is. But they're 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 able to now expunge that out of themselves and make it humorous and make us laugh. Um, and yeah, it, you know, like Philip Roth is one that comes to mind, you know, mm-hmm. very funny, but very serious, you know, very dark, um, things yeah. like that. Um, well, war literature is some of the funniest literature ever written. Oh yeah, right? for sure. You know, Robert Graves, goodbye to all that. The good soldier Shrek, catch 22, like, mm-hmm. you know, well, wait, all right. Well, you say catch 22. Did you like catch 22? It's one of yeah, the of books. Well, you say, of course, right? I feel like it's one of those books, and you're smiling. People can't see you smiling. It's one of those books that, like, you know, I enjoyed it. I wasn't blown away. There were times, <laughs> you know, like, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just, it's, I feel like it's fallen into the historical significant realm in, in a slot. It's there to stay. It's fine. Um, it was a book I kind of put off for a long time reading, self-admittedly. I must have, you know. <laughs> Okay, but come on, like, is there a more amazing American character than Milo, right? Like, it's ridiculous. I mean, he's, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how, how original really it is. Um, and, but at the same time, it was a little, not, not fantastical for me, but it was just a little. Or, or even just the idea of the Catch 22 is so perfect, it, it, right? Great title. And then that just that intense scene with the, the injury that's sort of at the heart of it. Um, it's funny. I mean, I, so I don't, I don't love Catch-22 the way some people do. Uh, Larkin called it the American hymn to cowardice. <laughs> um, but there is, I mean, there's marvelous stuff. You could do an entire podcast on just that book. We won't, we'll, we'll let other people do that. All right, cool. So you're, um, you're in high school. You got older brothers. You got younger brothers. I don't know what you're doing. You're hanging out. You go to college eventually. Um, mm-hmm. That's kind of when your life, I think, starts to take a little bit of a change. Or was there something happened right. before college? Well, so, I mean, high school. So I went to a Jesuit high school called Regis. And that was very, very important. Um, and, you know, you've read missionaries and, and, and redeployment. You'll note that sort of Jesuits pop up um and certain things that are informed by that it's a very you know the jesuits are an order of of catholic priests uh they tend to be extremely intellectual right um and there's a real sort of richness to the way that they approach education uh that was pretty important to me and also a sort of sensibility that um you know i was part of a group called kiro in high school where you know we read catholic literature um but part of it the the uh, the organization was also, uh, you know, we would uh, volunteer at this uh, hospice. Um, and, and the idea was that, you know, sort of what you were reading had to be tied to sort of actually going out and doing real physical things in the world. Intense um, for a 16 year old boy. Yeah. yeah. You know, 
<laughs> um, it was interesting, you know, it was a hospice um, in the village um, uh, run by Sisters of Charity, which is Mother Teresa's um, order. Um, and uh, it was a surprisingly joyful place, right? Uh, it's very interesting. They cooked the spiciest food that you would possibly imagine. Um, but I so uh, okay, so you're so you're starting off on that track, obviously. What made you you went to Dartmouth, correct? Yeah. Was there a push towards that college specifically? I mean, what was the choice behind that? Was I mean, were you going to were you going into college to become a writer? What were you going to college for? Yeah, um, you know, I, I was ultimately deciding between that and um, Georgetown School of Foreign Service. You know, if you'd asked me in, in high school, I probably would have told you I wanted to be a diplomat. Uh, my okay. maternal grandfather had been a diplomat, and I always admired that. I was always fascinated by U.S. foreign policy. Uh, I, I wasn't sure I wanted to be sort of on that specific track. Uh, I knew I wanted to study writing. Dartmouth had a good program. But, you know, like I was, you know, what, 17 when I was making the decision. So, you know, like I went to Dartmouth and had a fun time, uh, which is the dumb reason that a lot of uh, – people ultimately will decide, um, you know, so, and it was, you know, it's beautiful. Uh, I ended up loving it. I had a great experience. I ended up, uh, meeting Tom Slay there who became very important to me sort of in terms of writing as a, a poet who was my thesis advisor when I did a creative writing thesis. Were you um, writing poetry? No, no, no. I was writing fiction, but uh-huh. they paired me with Tom I don't know what the rationale behind pairing me with Tom was, but like, it was perfect. Our sensibilities were very similar. And so it's sort of funny after that, Tom went out and started doing, you know, conflict reporting, uh, which has sort of made its way into his poetry in really profound ways. that has been influential to me as I've been writing. So um, what, what, yeah. what were you writing in college? I mean, were you writing, you weren't writing the stories that would become readable. I mean, no, what, I was writing stories. Um, uh, Nothing but, long uh, form, no, no no grand novel in your mind at no, that time? No, no grand novel. I was working on stories. I mean, yeah, I was working on my craft. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I was trying to write good stories. That's what I was trying to do. And, and you know, reading a lot. And, and when I met Tom, and he knew that I was joining the Marine Corps, and going into the Marine Corps, uh, and, you know, would probably end up deploying to a war zone after I, I graduated. He was like, all right, you know, now, you, you know, I'm going to have you read some of the greatest minds to ever write about war. So well, can you know, I pause I really, you there real quick? Yeah. You made it, you made a pretty large jump. Uh, you made a yeah. from, um, from writing short stories in Dartmouth to joining the Marine Corps. Uh, how did that happen? What was that? I mean, you know, was that something you always want? You said you wanted to be a, maybe a diplomat. I mean, how did the Marine Corps, well, we're, our nation, our nation was at war, right? Well, so let people know. I mean, what time, what, what year is it? This so is yeah, this was, yeah. Uh, yeah, I started to college in 2001. Some right? people listening um, to this podcast were maybe not even alive when September 11th. Right. I, yeah, for, so. I was a freshman. I was standing. I was 20 miles east of Manhattan. I'm sorry, west of Manhattan. Yeah. When 9-11 happened, I was standing at my locker freshman, freshman year of high school in between first and second period. And Tyler Goodwin came up to my locker. My dad worked in the twin towers from 1990 to 2000 worked mm. on the 98th floor. Um, so, Oh yeah. my God. Oh yeah. I mean, of course, um, took me to, I mean, I was on, I was on the top of that building half a dozen times. Um, and yeah, and he told me it happened. So yeah, just so people are aware that's the, that's what we're talking about. So this is right. Right. Yeah. yeah so, you know, um, 
and I'd always wanted to do something in terms of public service. Public service is very important in my family, service, generation of service in general. And, um, and then we were at, suddenly at war. I was actually, when 9-11 happened, I was in the woods. So I didn't experience 9-11 in the kind of like media saturated way that everybody else did, where they're sort of watching these images on the screen, repeating themselves, watching the news. No, I was in the woods and we'd heard, heard rumors that we'd first discounted. Right. Were you hiking? Where, where, where in the woods? Appalachian Trail? Where were you? I was on the Appalachian Trail. It was like a <laughs> D- Dartmouth, you know, like, you know, welcome to Dartmouth, you know, go hike the Appalachian Trail yeah. thing, uh, you know. Uh, so, yeah, then, then you know, we were in Afghanistan very soon after that and soon to be going into Iraq. So, you know, uh, that seemed to be the way uh, it just seemed logical, right, to, to join. I mean, why didn't you join? Me, well, I was, um, you know, it's interesting, and I'm happy you asked that, right? Uh, so, really, we're talking because I, I did a, I did a podcast with um, I, I think you're, you're, you know, Elliot Ackerman. Yeah, yeah, great guy. Mm-hmm. So I did a podcast with him, and I said in that episode, hell of a writer too, badass writer, um, badass dude, um, and <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah, really is, um, and but I said in that episode, I'm like, you know what? If I if if I had had a chance to, you know, if I had three chances to go back in time and do it over again, one of the things I would have done is join the Marine Corps. Um, it's something that you know, as I get older, I, I impose discipline in myself. You know, through my own self discipline, there's no one out. There's no outside force doing it. You know, no one's set doing this podcast for me. I'm doing it. Um, that said, when I was younger, I could have used that discipline. Really, I mean, you know, seventeen, eighteen. Mm-hmm. I was a, I was a punk kid. I was smoking weed, playing mm-hmm. punk rock. Um, you know, I wasn't a bad kid, but I wasn't going aiming towards Dartmouth. You know what I'm saying? So you asked me why didn't I join? Um, at the time, that wasn't the person I was. Um, looking <laughs> back on it now, it might have been good for me. <laughs> um, that said, let's. we don't need to... Sorry, so you joined the Marine Corps. Um, you are deployed, correct? Uh, yeah. So I was a public affairs officer. So, um, you know, I worked with the media. I had a group of Marines who would like write stories, take photographs, do stuff on, on what the unit was doing, you know, convey information back to the families, mostly for base papers and that sort of thing, but also would work with journalists. So when journalists would come through and want to embed with the unit, um, you know, they'd, they'd make their way through, uh, through where I was. I was in Ambar province, which was, uh, I was in Takatam, which was this base sort of in between Ramadi and Fallujah. Um, and it was an interesting job, right? Very safe job relative to uh, other jobs, okay? Because, you know, I was in probably the most violent place in Iraq um, when I came in there, but my job was relatively safe, right? Um, but because of the nature of it, you know, I'd go out on a patrol with the infantry, I'd hang out with engineers, with um, mortuary affairs guys, yeah. doctors, nurses, that whole. So I sort of saw a pretty wide range of things, and I, you know, kind of everything from being in a Humvee with a bunch of, you know, Lance corporals to sitting in on the battle update assessment briefs that went to General Odierno uh, in charge of. And what what were the years of your deployment? So uh, January 2007 to February 2008. So there was a sort of large surge of troops to Iraq. So basically what happened was we invaded Iraq and as was utterly predictable, um, the country sort of spiraled into chaos, right? Um, they tended to put ideologues in charge around the people, you know, a lot of the people who sort of understood um, the country uh, also vocally 
Some were very opposed to the war. Um, uh, you had some particularly terrible decisions made early on. And of course, Donald Rumsfeld, who was the Secretary of Defense at the time, really didn't want to do any nation building or uh, he was often at odds with the reconstruction effort and undermined it in, in, in various ways and, um, and sort of denied uh, requests for additional troops for security as the situation was, was rapidly spiraling out of control. And you had this sort of building insurgency of various types, right? Um, so you had sort of more uh, secular uh, attacks uh, against U.S. troops. You had sort of hardcore Islamist groups, the uh, monotheism and jihad, which was the group that would later become Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which would later become um, ISIS. Uh, you sort of had sort of moved in to kind of take advantage of the chaos. You had... Uh, on the other uh, other side, uh, Shia uh, militias. Uh, so it was just a very volatile, chaotic situation. And that spun out of control and the violence became utterly horrific by 2006. And uh, the, they decided to sort of change strategy to do a sort of counterinsurgency approach, increase the number of troops in, in Iraq, um, try and partner more with local forces. There's a whole kind of change in how we were supposed to do things. And I came in in that period, right? And at the same time, there was a movement called the Ambar Awakening, which was basically a, a group of sheikhs who, for a variety of reasons, had decided to ally with the Americans to fight back al-Qaeda in Iraq. And that had started in very late uh, 2006. Um, and so during the time that I was there... Anbar was a very, very violent province, but we started uh, having these successful partnerships uh, with local, you know, local tribesmen uh, and sort of slowly bringing the level of violence down uh, in city by city. Uh, and so that was sort of what happened uh, during the year that I was there. You know, like there's the first month that I'm there, you know, huge suicide truck bombing, uh, you know, carrying like injured men, women, and children, uh, you know, into, uh, you know, into the combat hospital on our base. Uh, you know, by the end, like, it was fairly actually quiet and, and, and somewhat boring uh, mm -hmm. by the time that I left, right? Uh, which was interesting, right? Because it felt, you know, it felt like we were winning, right? Uh, if you, you know, if you were a, a Marine then. Mm -hmm. And while you're there, I mean, you said earlier in the podcast, you were, while well, in college, you are working, you know, working on your craft of writing while you're there. Are you doing any writing at all? Are you writing in your head? Or are you thinking about you stories that you want to write once you mm -hmm. get home? How did this all start happening? Not, not really. Um, my Marine, I mean, like, you know, I'm, I'm working on writing with my Marines. Um, I wrote like one or two stories, not about the war or anything yeah. like that. Just, you know, just trying to continue to write a little bit. About a bakery in Queens. I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I didn't, uh, I didn't, but, but then I got back. And within a couple of months of getting back, I started writing uh, the first story in redeployment. So, you know, I wrote the sentence, we shot dogs, which was the first sentence of the book that I wrote and, and remained the first sentence of the book. Um, and sort of went, went from there. When you wrote that sentence, was that, I mean, did you have some feeling that you were like, something kind of clicked in your head or was the story already in your mind that you wanted to write? Yeah. So that, that, um, 
I like that sentence and that voice, right? So the, the, the opening paragraph of that story felt right. Um, you know, the story changed. It took me a couple of years to finish it. Um, but the overall shape of it remained the same. Mm-hmm. And, and the voice remained the same. Um, it, it was something that, so that story is not set during the time that I was deployed to Iraq. It's set during the, during the second battle of Fallujah, which was in 2004 and the aftermath. And that actually Elliot Ackerman was in that battle. Um, and it was based on a, a guy that I knew, um, uh, Two, two folks that I knew who had been in that battle and told me about shooting dogs, but but some of the stories specifically were from a guy named Mike Green who'd been a machine gunner then, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, who told me about Operation Scooby and had said to me, there's a sentence in that story, I could spot a dime in the street 20 yards away. That's something he told me, right? Uh, he uncovered, a you know, a torture house where they'd been injecting mercury into a target guy's skull mm-hmm. for some reason. So uh, a lot of the, some of the images um, are from, you know, stories that, that Mike Green told me before I ever deployed that had just sort of been rattling around in my head. Um, but then when I came back from Iraq, um, uh, those, those things, and, and, you know, you also put in other stuff and do more research, but um, felt like a, a sort of good way into talking about some of the things that would later concern me throughout that book, which was a lot about sort of homecoming and the experience of, of, of coming home and interacting with people uh, after you've been in, in a war zone uh, and the sort of what they project on you and what you project on them and the difficulties of communication. So before the podcast, we were talking, so you asked me, I, I, I am a fan of yours, right? So this is the first edition. Uh, the reason I got this book and well, this is the, for people who don't know uh, stories would eventually become this book that Phil wrote. Um, and I got this book because right when I moved to San Francisco, uh, I joined a book club and this book, I think it was the week it came out and it, mm. it was, so that was my introduction to you. One of the stories and, you know, before we did this podcast, I was going back through the book to kind of refresh. Um, I was peeking through the one where, uh, the father, the Vietnam vet tells us yeah. about the horrors and the things like that. And try, I mean, mm-hmm. so you know, you're writing about things that obviously are very, very true. Um, I'm assuming these stories took some time to kind of, you know, they, they're pretty intense. You know, th- this is something you bang out in a day. And what mm-hmm. was the process? It took four and a half years to write the book. I, I repeat that. How many, how long? Four and a half years. For four and a half. Yeah. So, so that, that four and a half the, for redeployment, six years for missionaries. Yeah. Cool. So we'll dive a little bit more into that. But so during those four and a half years, how were you writing this book? I mean, were mm-hmm. you working a full-time job? Were you writing in the morning? Did you have kids? You write when you were doing laundry? I mean, what was your routine like? Yeah. So no set routine. And, you know, so as I said, I started it while I was still in the Marine Corps. Right. And then I, um, I got, uh, I got into Hunter's uh, creative writing program. Okay. Right. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was actually, Hunter, yeah. <laughs> when I, no, no, I just, I'm just thinking about like, it was amazing. It was a wonderful place. Uh, and, um, uh, I studied with Nathan Englander, Colin McCann, Peter Carey, well, Claire Masood, uh, Patrick Nathan, McGrath. Nathan's been on the podcast too. He, uh, he's, yeah, he's a, he's a character, incredible. man. Uh, oh my you God. Said, yeah. You said Colin McCann, um, you're, you have a relationship with Colin, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Great yeah, guy. I'm a big fan of his as well, for sure. Yeah. And, um, I, uh, <laughs> we'd love to have him on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, the, um, so he called 
and I was the officer on duty and there were these like, <laughs> so this uh, corpsman had gotten very, very drunk and gone home to what he thought was his barracks. And this, this is like 8 PM. Like this is not like, like late enough yeah. for anybody to have reasonably been as drunk as this guy was. <laughs> so all the barracks look the same on a military base. Right. So he shows up at what he thinks is his barracks and goes to what he thinks is his room and is like very upset to see that apparently some Marines have like taken all of his stuff out of his room and put their stuff in and are just sitting in his room, you know, like playing video games or whatever. So he attacks them because they're in his room in his mind. Uh, uh, in reality, it was military police battalions oh, shit. Uh, barracks. So like dealing with drunk corpsmen, is something that they have a lot of experience with, right? So it's like, perfect. Um, so I show up as the officer on duty because there's this incident. And, you know, they've got him in like a sort of like arm bar. And it's one of these things where like, if you struggle, it, you know, forces your hurts your more. arm into, yeah, it hurts more. But he's really drunk and belligerent. So he's struggling and then screaming. Yeah. And they're just going like, and he's like, ah! And they're just going like, stop struggling, man. Stop making me hurt you, man. You're doing this to yourself, man. Stop making me hurt you, man. Don't ah! make him want to yet. And <laughs> that's when Colum calls, right? <laughs> so I get the call. I answer it. I'm like, first Lieutenant Clyde, second Marine Division officer on duty. Right? <laughs> and it's like, uh, Colm McClanahan in the background. There's just like, ah! uh-huh. <laughs> stop making me hurt you, man. You're doing this to yourself, man. Ah! Yeah. And I'm like, I have a situation to deal with. I will call you back. <laughs> was, was that like, your introduction no! or had you known him before? Yes, that was my introduction. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> so, um, anyway, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I started when I was still in the Marine Corps. Yeah. Uh, that's when I wrote, you know, like, uh, an early version of, of the first story in redeployment was part of my, like, you know, uh, submission package to, uh, to Hunter. And then, uh, I worked on stories, also a novel uh, that ultimately sort of discarded. Um, you know, there's, there's like a couple the chapters in the drawer that podcast. I like, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I had about sort of maybe by the time I graduated Hunter, about maybe 20,000 words worth of stories. Yeah. Um, and then that were kind of close to finished. Um, and, and then uh, I went into a, a masters in teaching so i wanted to be a high school English teacher that's the plan and so there was a period where i was uh, writing stories um uh i was uh in grad school for teaching and i was student teaching fifth through eighth graders which was a mm-hmm. lot of fun uh and they're just like you know yeah, i'd imagine that would be a lot of fun at that age yeah yeah, yeah. It's good yeah um I, I, I did a <laughs> i did a writing assignment with these kids and um I was trying to get them used to the idea that like a sentence is not just about like the factual information that it conveys, but that there's a lot of like sort of character and emotion and beauty that you can, and humor that you can in sort of how you write a sentence. So I gave them like a list of like, you know, a bunch of first sentences from stories and novels that I like. And, um, and there, they had to pick three that they liked talk about what they liked about them and then rewrite one of them badly. Right. You know, um, you know, so they're like kind of deconstructing. <laughs> Uh, and my favorite was the sixth grader rewrote the opening sentence of uh, Moby Dick, call me Ishmael, <laughs> as, uh, hi, I'm Ishmael, said Ishmael, introducing himself. Uh, it's kind of genius. Was so, <laughs> it's kind of brilliant, yeah. yeah. 
yeah, so there was a period where I was writing, uh, you know, while doing that. I sold the book while I was at uh, Teachers College, so I finished wait, hold the on, semester. Wait, hold on, wait, wait. So, all right, so that, that's 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 that, that's the big question, right? So that, that's what people yeah. want to know. Um, you said you sold a book. That's everyone's dream. Who writes? Right. So you're yep. writing these stories. At what point do you are, are you are you sharing them with anyone? Are you or do you have writing friends that you? Yeah, have? absolutely. I write. I I write obsessively revised, um, and I was sending stories in stages to multiple people. Right, um, Chris Robinson, Lauren Holmes, Matt Gallagher for missionaries. Elliot Ackerman, uh, Red Thingley Carpenter, and. Um, uh, my wife reads sort of like, as I get closer to the final version, she reads everything, um, and gives me feedback. Uh, you know, I have a buddy, Chris Robinson, uh, who <laughs> he, we once calculated that of one, one of the stories in, in redeployment, he read a hundred thousand words worth of that story, right. In different iterations. Um, <laughs> And yeah, he's a good friend. Uh, I love, I love word count. I just, I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so yeah, so I, I, I'll say this as far as, you know, I like to start out by writing by hand, you know? Okay. Um, uh, and when I'm, you know, it's, it's different for a novel, but when I was writing the stories, I'd often sort of have a kind of, sometimes I'd start with like a voice, right? So for you know uh, the first story had a voice and 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 some of the stories are sort of more written in a straight line right so it's like uh there's a story in the book called money as a weapon system where it's like all right like there's like a problem and then like you know he's going to try and solve it and there's a sort of a plot and a b plot right like um and uh you know like there's like a, a water treatment facility that he's dealing with and then there's like you know he has this task to get Iraqi kids to play baseball. Right. And they're sort of operating on parallel courses. Right. And so that is sort of like, you know, cause and effect one thing falls the other. Um, some of the stories are written where they're structured, um, uh, with a sort of the way that the material is organized is along a kind of, um, emotional narrative, right. As, as the storytelling. So a story like bodies that actually, uh, the writer Lauren Holmes, uh, who I studied with at, at, at Hunter and wrote a great book of stories called um, Barbara the Slut and Other People. Um, <laughs> and you wouldn't like from the sort of superficially, you wouldn't think that we're similar, right? Yeah. But, in, in, you know, like how we think about fiction actually really jives and, and um, you know, we'd have these discussions and, and she helped me fig- like figure out like, okay, like, no, 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 like, you know, like this piece needs to be brought forward and, and, and were you open to, to that criticism out. or that feedback? Yeah. Uh, you, yeah. you we're never pushing against it. Yeah. I mean, like, I think an important part of, of, of writing is sort of learning to be more interested in, 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 in your screw ups than defensive of them. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm obsessed about it. I mean, like, it's not like you take every piece of advice, like an important part of it is being like, Oh, that's an interesting point for a story that I'm not trying to write. You know what I mean? Um, well, like I write that, so I like that, so I'm keeping it, yeah, but, yeah. uh, and sometimes like people will tell you, you know, to throw something out that you're like, okay, like this isn't good, but I wrote it for a reason. So why did I write it? Right. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's what I, I was, I was going to get to that. <clears throat> so you mm-hmm. said you sold the book. What point? How'd that happen? 
Well, yeah, I mean, so I'm assuming once you start Locked. getting into that world of submitting it, you're going to start getting that kind of feedback, right? The feedback you were right. just talking about of like, you know, this could work. And you know, what was the process like? At the well, no, no, that was all that stuff was beforehand, right? So really? Like, okay. You know, I never focused on. Were you um, writing to get it published or was that even a thought in your mind? I, I was i assumed i would i would try and publish it at some point but i was fixated on getting the stuff right now yeah the way that i got to publishing was incredibly lucky right because you can't you can't plan out what people are going to be interested in okay right now i don't think people are as interested in war fiction right we're still at war but nobody nobody really cares um and uh, so if I had put published redeployment right now, we'd have a very different reception. Okay. Um, and, but when I did publish redeployment, uh, well, I'll get to that in, in yeah. a second, but basically, uh, Granta, John Freeman, Granta, they were doing a 10 years after nine 11 issue. Right. Um, John knows Nathan Engler, right. Who is my teacher at Hunter. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Nathan was teaching you at Hunter. Mm-hmm. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Cool. Yeah. So now Nathan's uh, um, agent married to John Freeman. He was then the or his partner is John Freeman, is then editor of Granta. He told Nathan that they were doing this 10 years after 9 11 issue. And Nathan was like, I have a you know former Marine student. Okay. So that's like, so then he said, okay, I haven't sent me his stuff. And they liked it and they wanted to publish uh, two stories. The first story, uh, redeployment and uh, and then uh, also on the web they published OIF, which is a a short, um, a very short uh, story, written with a lot of acronyms. And um, and so on the basis of that, Scott Moyers at Penguin Press read it, liked it, um, talked to Andrea Walker who was there. They wanted to see more stuff. Uh, I sent them the five stories that I had completed, and then they bought the. Uh, the collection off of that alone, which is kind of crazy. Right. And like, I sort of got an agent with Eric Simon off at the same time that I got a, uh, a book deal pretty much. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that doesn't really happen, but no. the reason that it happened, <laughs> it, especially for a collection of short stories, right. Um, you know, the reason that it happened was in part, I think, because, um, there hadn't been a lot of literary fiction written about the Iraq war that was coming out. Uh, I think w- along the time that this was happening, like this 2011, Kevin, right? Yeah. Kevin powers, like yellow birds. I don't think it, it hadn't, hadn't been published yet, but it was like on the horizon. Um, uh, and, uh, so <laughs> like there, there had been very little, literary fiction written by veterans, right? There'd been memoirs and, and things, but there was a kind of sense that like people were waiting for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so the books that got, that came out in that period got a lot of attention. And then there were, you know, there are some like really good war books that came out later um, that got some attention for sure. Um, but, you know, didn't get as much attention, uh, you know, some, some of the earlier books, um, and it's just, you know, it's kind of like, there's a certain amount of just luck that is a part of this. Right. And I got extremely, extremely lucky. Um, 
but you were also prepared. I mean, you had done the work before. So it wasn't like when this happened, all of a sudden, it seemed like it happened fairly quickly. I mean, you had yeah. done the work previous. I mean, you were probably confident in your ability to be a writer, I'm assuming. Um, you were mm -hmm. probably happy with what you were, you were happy with enough right. to send it off to try to get it published. Uh, I mean, when that first started happening, I mean, what were you, I mean, were you thinking just like, holy shit, this is happening? Were you kind of just like, I mean, you know, you're, you know, you're a Marine. So I'm assuming you're pretty level headed emotionally. You're able to keep your emotions under control, but I mean, inside we were like, "Holy shit!" Were you freaking out? Yeah, or I wasn't freaking out, but I was pretty excited. Yeah, um, I, was, I, I was, you know, I knew I had to like work ahead of me because I had only twenty thousand words worth yeah. written at that point. You know, I had some stories in development, but like as far as stuff that was basically done, you know, I had five of the shorter stories from from the collection were were done. Mm -hmm. Right. So when the book came out what was it like? I mean, you know, we're, we're talking via zoom because we can't leave our apartments right now. Um, back then, you know, back then 2011, um, when that book came out, I mean, what, what was it like for I me? Mean, were you going on book tours? I mean, was the reception yeah. immediately we'll get into obviously it won the national book award, which is a huge thing. Mm -hmm. What was that process? I mean, what, what was that time? Do you remember what it was like then? I mean, it must've been, Absolutely. Yeah, it was wild. It was wild. Yeah, yeah. So it was also extremely stressful. It's right? your because first book. Yeah, it's your first book, and and it felt like sort of like exposing a raw nerve to the world, right? Um, it's fiction is deeply, deeply personal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's more personal than nonfiction. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I was also incredibly lucky, right? I was, uh, I, you know, the book got very good reviews. Um, the the reception was very warm people really engaged with it um and then you know and like veterans liked it too right um and so were you speaking with veterans at the time when the book was coming sure. i mean uh you were uh -huh. yeah yeah um and also like a lot of people read the book who you know maybe weren't necessarily normal readers of like literary fiction right but but, but for whom the um you know, the book spoke to them in some ways. My really father. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that book comes out now, obviously I'm assuming your life changes a little bit. Now you're an author, right? Um, <laughs> well, what happens then? I mean, you know, do you immediately start writing that next book? I had you, did you want to do a novel? Did you want to write more short stories? What were you thinking? I mean, were you like, I was, already, I was already, I'd already had the idea to work on, on a Columbia novel. Um, and so I was still in the early stages of research. I do a ton of research, right? I do, I mean, I did a ton of research for redeployment. It's funny because people think like, Oh, you're, you're a Marine. So like yeah. you're basing this on your experience. It's like, not really. Yeah. Um, well, you certainly know your uh, acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so like, you know, I had to like learn enough Spanish to be able to sort of stumble my way through um, interviews in, in Colombia when I went down a couple times. And, and um, why Colombia? Uh, a whole variety of reasons. So uh, it's a fascinating conflict, right? Um, the. Colombia has been the largest recipient of military aid in the Western hemisphere since the Clinton administration. Actually, you know who uh, helped put that uh, package together? Of sort of a mil militarized drug war? Joe Biden. Boom. Um, yeah. 
uh, playing Columbia. Uh, and <laughs> then in, yeah, it didn't work. Uh, Columbia still producing cocaine. Uh-huh. Um, <clears throat> though the aid was during the Bush years then shifted to, um, I'm going to this a little bit in the book to fighting the, the FARC directly. Uh, and as a military campaign that was successful, right? Um, the, so Columbia was sort of a, a discussed as a success case, right? And towards the latter half of the Obama administration, there were a lot of discussions about sort of lessons from Colombia that could be applied to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, and also a lot of talk of the use of high value targeting in Colombia as something that could be effective in Afghanistan, which is something I'm extremely skeptical about. Um, so high value targeting, targeted assassinations, right? Us killing people. So in mid 2000s, we started giving the Colombian smart bombs. Now there's a lot of um, cross pollination between conflicts. Every ambassador that we sent to Colombia post 9-11 ended up you know, in the Middle East wars in some way. Two of our ambassadors to Colombia, their next posting was to be the ambassador to Afghanistan. One of them later said that there was no place that we had more going on than Colum- uh, than, uh, than Colombia, including Afghanistan. Um, uh, you had, you know, seventh group, special forces group that was ping-ponging back and forth between Afghanistan wow. and um, uh, 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 Colombia, Latin America more more generally. Uh, so there were a lot of reasons. My wife is Colombian-American. That's a big one. So it was very easy to go to, you know, Medellin, stay with Helps family. Helps with the they research. Help they help, yeah, they helped me out a lot and helped me, you know, connect me to everybody from like, you know, people who grew up in paramilitary towns to the former minister of the interior under the Uribe presidency, right, to interview. Um, so that was great. Um, and yeah. Uh, also like in terms of, you know, you talk about like targeted assassination, which is a pretty important toolkit in, in the U.S.'s um, arsenal right now. It's a tool that I have a lot of sort of moral reservations about that are sort of dealt with in the book. Um, you know, the, the method by which we do that um, has roots in like the hunt for Pablo Escobar, right? And then in Iraq, it um, kind of gets put on an industrial scale, right? And we go from doing like 12 raids a month by sort of JSOC and in 2004 to 250 a month, right? Um, and that system, right, that, that we use to kill and capture high-value targets, that system gets applied to Colombia and brought to Colombia, where the Colombians are doing the killing, but we're aiding them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that the novel explores. And so it was just, it was a kind of perfect case for what the novel is concerned with, which is not one conflict specifically, but the way that a sort of new way of 21st century warfare has inaugurated and the the way that it sort of exists in all of these different war zones and sort of things that happen in one place echo in another. So I want to go back to the beginning of this book. Um, you're coming out of redeployment. You know, I'm assuming the success of the book wasn't expected. I mean, I, I'm assuming. No. Yeah. So you don't put out a, a short story collection and expect. Of course not. Um, so, I mean, like, it's crazy, <laughs> right? It was yeah. utterly insane. Yeah. 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 So you're working. So you're coming out of that, right? It, I'm, as you can see, there's a guitar behind me. I've spent most of my life yeah. touring in bands. The big thing in the music world is the sophomore slump, right? It's, you know, you have this band mm-hmm. that, you know, writes this record, takes them 20 years to write the first record, and then they have one year to write the second record. Mm-hmm. Coming out of that first book with the success, a couple questions, you know, were you, was it not necessarily a 
question of doubt, but were you thinking to yourself, it, do you, was there a bar that you felt you had to live up to now? And if so, you know, were you really concerned about it? If not, were you really even thinking about redeployment when starting the bar this is, project? The bar is set by the material, yeah. right? By what you're trying to communicate. So it's not like, it's not like people have expectations. This is the thing, like, I, I knew, like, you know, because of redeployment, there's some people who are going to go in and read missionaries and they would read it um, sympathetically, right? And then there were some people who could go in and read missionaries unsympathetically because of redeployment, right? And you just know that starting off the bat. But the reading you also matters. <laughs> yeah. You also sort of like, there's a way in which like, one thing that's kind of funny is if you, at this point I've written two books with a lot of different sort of voices and characters and perspectives, right? And one thing that's kind of funny is like, so for redeployment, there would be reviews that were like, like, I like this book, but these, these two stories are bad. Right. And then there'd be like another, you know, uh, uh, but this story is great. And then there'd be another review. They'd be like, no, that story is terrible, but these two stories are great. And it'd be the same stories, but just with the polarity switched. Right. Yeah. And you have the same thing for missionaries. Like some people are like, you know, like, Abel and Juan Pablo are awesome. And some people are like, no, like these characters are bad, but these characters are good. And at this point, I think I've had different reviewers say the four main voices like each one has been either the good one or the bad one according to some reviewer um it, which i actually kind of take as like a compliment right um that i'm sort of approaching the things from a different enough angle that like some people are going to like find something to like each thing y you I, you can't worry about like some abstract sense of what like the the critic it's <laughs> going to be drawn to um you have to be true to the material right mm -hmm. and being true to the material in some cases is going to mean writing something that some critic is going to dislike because you did it right right because they don't like that thing right um uh so the form of the book and the shape of it and the way that you're um trying to go about it has to be determined by the the nature of the book that you're trying to write, right? Rather than some sort of sense of what the public's going to want, which is like shifting anyway, you know? Like, as I said, like redeployment was successful in large part because the timing was right, right? Mm -hmm. And I got really lucky, you know? Um, uh, I mean, the, 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 the head judge of the National Book Award um, uh, when, when I won had been a correspondent in the Middle East. As part of her career, right? That's what it is. She's an amazing writer, right? <laughs> because I have unbelievable gratitude, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, for her. But it also meant that there was somebody on the panel who, like, knew that world, like, really well, yeah, right, um, and was probably invested in it. Um, uh, and uh, you know, like, that's always going to 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 factor in. So all you can do is be as true as possible and that that means that like in a day of writing a day of writing is a day of writing it doesn't you don't think about that that sort of reception notion as you're writing it you because you're you're it also doesn't matter like a day of writing like there are plenty of days of writing suck you know <laughs> like and the beauty of writing is like it doesn't matter crappy writing this day 
go back tomorrow and like mm-hmm. you just throw it out like throw out the stuff that was bad and you don't even have to figure it out yourself you'd be like all right i wonder what matt gallagher thinks of this and he'll have some ideas maybe that'll help me fix this this problem you know what does chris robinson think what does elliot think what does lauren think yeah i mean you know i'm i'm at the back end of finishing my first novel i i i, mm-hmm. I, I published a, thanks yeah i published a novella three weeks before the world shut down um, and yeah. then, I, and then I started this podcast more as self therapy to finish this novel. Um, mm-hmm. Now that I'm at the back end of it, um, it's interesting. You know, if I hadn't put out that first book, I would not have been able to accomplish what I accomplished with this novel. Mm-hmm. So you're sitting here, you're talking about you know reviewers and critics with your legs crossed and a smile. Um, now that you're on your second book, you know. Do you even you know what is that even a part of your world anymore? I mean, are you, like you said, you're writing to, to for the material to be true to yourself. You know, at the first time when you were getting praise, I mean, how, how were you taking the criticism on the first book? Was there any criticism at all? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, there there were always things that people didn't like, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> you know, um, so. But the thing about it was like the first book was what I wanted to say at the time. Right. So, you know, I sort of think of putting out a book as like a extremely rigorous and time consuming way of sort of offering up something as part of an ongoing conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like that is what I wanted to say at that time. So it's not like I would go back and write the book differently according yeah. to some criticism, right? Like once in a while, like there's a, there's a sentence or here or there where I'm like, well, I would change that. Right. There's like, there's one sentence and one story. Um, and it's one of the first stories. So the, it's the, I often read at readings. I'll read. Um, so like for what works at a reading tends to be the stories that are written more like you tell something to somebody in a bar. Right. Okay. And some of the stories are kind of more like, you know, like, People like the story uh, from the perspective of the chaplain, but it doesn't read as well. And you had to um, learn that, right? You had to learn that. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and um, I was part of a vet's writing group through NYU, and we had done, you know, readings uh, at um, KGB bar for like a while before we were published, and that was a great experience. Uh, and those guys are really important to me. Yeah. Um, still, and I'm still good friends with them, and, and they were early readers for the book as yeah. well. But. Um, yeah, so with Ten Click South, there's like one sentence that I always omit, and every time I get to it, I'm just like, "Oh, how did you? How did that get yeah. in the book? You know, yeah. it's like not yeah. a good sentence, but like I, I, you know, I like the story and the story. So like, yeah, like, yeah, who changed that sentence? But like, you know, whatever. Yeah, uh, the, you know, the 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 you know the 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 book is what I wanted to say at the time, and and like a, you know people picked it up and like engaged with it. And that's deeply, deeply gratifying. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in, in a way, like, I think I'm more shaped, like, you know, like every once in a while there'd be a critic who says that they disliked it. Right. Um, and, but it, it tends to be more interesting to engage with people who read the book and then have something that they want to say in response to it rather than like, somebody being like, this didn't please me, you know, it's like, all right, well, yeah, good for you. Tough right. Shit. Like, okay. But like, if you have a, if you have something substantive to say, right. If you have like a sort of intellectual argument, um, 
that you want to make with the book. That might be interesting, right? Yeah. That might be something that'll shape the way that I think. I mean, and I think worth that, your time. Right. You know, so, uh, you know, I think like, um, uh, if you think of something like somebody like uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, right? His, his, uh, his, uh, a book that he wrote nonfiction, uh, you know, obviously, you know, people know him as the sympathizers and, and, uh, the refugees is his fiction, but he's a nonfiction book called nothing ever dies, which about, uh, the literature, um, around the Vietnam war. Right. And he has a lot of very thoughtful things to say about more narrative and the ways that more narratives are constructed. Um, that is, was certainly something that I was thinking about when I was writing missionaries. Right. Um, so that, that, and you know, that kind of thing, uh, can be extremely useful, but it has to be criticism. That's where there's an argument behind it. Not, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of fairly shallow criticism, uh, out there. Uh, and there are few critics who are very, very thoughtful, right? The, the kind of critic that I hate is where, they seem to be taking a certain pleasure and trying to take a reader down and are more interested in the quips than in making an argument that I can actually sort of sink my teeth it's into. about themselves right? almost, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the reasons that I dislike that are twofold. One, you know, if somebody, you, like if a writer spends several years working on a novel, like if you take pleasure in trying to take them down a peg because, you know, it didn't please you, you're an asshole. But two, and this is not to say, like, I've written negative book reviews, you know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, when I felt that the, the, that the work deserved it. But two, if it's just that, then there's actually, you're not actually saying anything, right? Other than expressing, it can be interesting the way that a book fails, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you approach a bad book with rigor, then a negative book review can actually be interesting and useful. Um, and that kind of reviewer is not is not actually engaging with the work in, an, in a serious way that's sort of worthy of respect. Um, so, you know, so all that said, was there any, so, the, the, so if, if, if somebody's making a negative argument of that kind, right, then that's the kind of, of, of feedback that I'd be interested in. Yeah. Right. So what's constructive. You know. um, that said though, was there any change in the routine of the, your writing from the first book to the second book? Yeah. But like, as I said, like my, my writing is, is, yeah, I was writing this book at different places. You know, like when I was in teacher's college, right? Like I was like writing on the, on the train. I was yeah, you know, taking the sure. train in and writing and then, um, and then writing it, like on the subway, uh, after, you know, teaching middle schoolers up to teacher's college and, you know, so you're writing not, on the subway and then like, yeah, I'm, I'm not like, you I need yourself to, in a room and, you know, yeah. be in a castle with an ostrich quill dipped in the cool. blood of my enemies. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have, you know, an ostrich yeah. quill dipped in the blood of my enemies. I just, you know, I, I use it for henna tattoos. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I usually start out writing by hand. I usually did a ton of research beforehand. It's, uh, you know, when I'm, when I was writing a story, I would have these sort of uh, ideas or images, um, or scenes that are kind of circle around. I sort of like sort of thought of these little jewels that I was going to construct. Right. So there would be things that I, that to me felt like they resonated against each other, even if it didn't necessarily make sense. Right. So it was like, um, uh, give you an example. Uh, so the, there's a story in the book 
um, called psychological operations and uh, this like watching somebody die through a thermal scope, right? Was one image that sort of stayed in my mind. And then another thing that stayed in my mind was the idea of this type of psychological warfare they'd done in, in Fallujah where they had actually literally like called out Arabic insults to taunt people into like pissing them off. <laughs> and, um, and that, uh, stayed in my mind. And then like, I had this idea of pairing that with like a veteran on a college campus. And somehow, like I knew that I was going to go through those three things. I didn't know how for writing missionaries. There's a, a story about clowns. Um, uh, we'll put it that way. And as soon as I, it's a true story. As soon as I read it uh, in a fantastic book by Juanita Leon, this uh, journalist, Colombian journalist, uh, the book, um, I knew I was going to use it in, in my novel. I didn't know how. Right. And then, you know, maybe like a year later after I'd been like reading other stuff and sort of thinking about it, it ended up fitting into this one section of, 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 uh, uh, one of one published chapters. So I'll, I'll sort of let these ideas sort of sit and accumulate meaning. Uh, I'll do research of uh, sort of various levels. I'll interview people. I'll read nonfiction books. I'll read fictional books. Um, a uh you know it's like um for i'll read um kind of like philosophical stuff that feels like people are working in line with the kind of ideas that i'm that i'm interested in mm-hmm. um all trying to get like a sort of very rich sense of you know a particular place what it looks like, what the, you know, what the culture is, what the, um, you know, what type of weapons and technology people are using, what, uh, types of experiences people might've had, um, and what kinds of ideas they might've had about what they're going through. Um, and then sort of slowly kind of create characters around that, um, or sort of put the characters into those scenes and then things, you know, radically evolve from there. So the brand new book is out. Let everyone please let everyone know what it's called. Missionaries. Yeah. And now are you the kind of guy you already working on the next thing? I mean, what's your plan now? How do you go about living your life? Starting the research for the next thing, which uh-huh. involves like reading a bunch of like Czech dissident authors. Was um, the idea in your head a while ago or is this kind of a new idea? It's, it's been in my head for a while. The, the second novel. So very different. Uh, what I'm going to be working on. Okay. Um, my so my maternal grandfather was a, a career diplomat. Was ambassador to Czech, Czechoslovakia in the 1970s, and um, uh, so it was sort of interesting time. You know, spies all around. Obviously, uh, my aunts have some great stories from that time. And my um, my and they're both committed Catholics. And my grandmother, not the time, women were not taken particularly seriously it would, you know my grandmother would end up doing a lot of work uh <laughs> very relevant for the mission but um you know like it always pissed her off that at dinners you know her her name would just be wife of right um but for certain types of work not being taken seriously was a benefit and when the italian ambassador was heading home the italian ambassador's wife came to my grandma and basically explained that she had been during her time there a liaison for Vatican city with the Czech Catholic resistance to the communists. And she wanted my grandmother to take up that role. Uh, now my grandmother 
wanted to do it, but ultimately they decided like as the wife of the American ambassador is just too high profile. Right. Um, but I figured why not write a spy novel imagining if my grandmother yeah, right. said yes. All right. So. Phil, that, that's a blast. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you <laughs> taking the time to talk to me. Um, at the end of the podcast, I always ask a couple of questions. Uh, first and foremost, where are people buying your books from? What's your favorite bookstore? I know you're a New York guy, but uh, can you give some shout outs? Yeah. So Q, Q and Willow is, is the, is my local bookstore in Q gardens. Um, any, so. any, any favorite stores around the country? You can think of any place you've done some cool readings at and things like that. Oh yeah, man. Um, I think of bookstores as rock clubs. So you know, when you're on book, like tour, green like, light, green light in Brooklyn books are magic in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, I love uh, like Powell's has been amazing. Have Elliot you ever Bay read in San Francisco? I, I have never read in San Francisco okay. proper. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever been there? So, but I, I, I did a, yeah, yeah I have. I okay. did a, for the San Francisco uh, liquid book festival. Oh, most for, definitely. Via yeah, Zoom, sure. via Zoom. So I yeah. probably would have had the opportunity uh, had it not been for the pandemic. Yeah. Well, I think we're on the other side of it and I'm hoping, you know, life gets yeah. kind of back to normal but phil this has been an absolute pleasure this has been wonderful thank yeah, you yeah thanks so much for taking the time to talk. oh and also um you're on are you instagram's twitter what's your handle phil quiet uh, okay. is, is my uh, twitter um cool yeah. great phil enjoy the rest of the day man you too take care bye-bye